Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast for Thursday, February 25th, 2021. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, the place where you can get merch. Yes, merch at merch.commentarymagazine.com, the Crushing Morosity t-shirt and sweatshirt, the Keeping the Candle Burning, the Keep the Candle Burning t-shirt, the Commentary Magazine logo t-shirt, and the Commentary Magazine logo tote bag this is what is available for your perusal and your purchase at merch.commentarymagazine.com. With me, as always, associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Uh, so we figure we've been talking too much about the schools. We've talked too much about, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're getting into sort of repetitive areas here, but there's something that we have to repeat, uh, can't help it, uh, which is that uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo is a scumbag and uh, has always been a horrible person, a, 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 a really ugly-spirited uh, public figure who, uh, from his uh, earliest days as his father's campaign operative, then on to being the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, where he attempted to sick prosecutors uh, on an independent council at HUD with the who had the temerity to investigate his own uh, shady dealings uh, in his own office with uh, uh, Section Eight block grants, um, on to his uh, governorship. So now, aside from uh, the nursing home scandal and uh, and uh, suppressing the uh, investigative Moreland Commission, which is too complicated to explain, but yeah, something else that he did uh, in a strong arm fashion, we have the testimony of a Democratic political operative. Lindsey Boylan, uh, who ran for Congress in my district against Jerry Nadler, um, that uh, Cuomo is a sexual harasser, an unambiguous sexual harasser who uh, grabbed her and kissed her on the lips after uh, compelling her uh, through a, what would you call it, a, uh, a mind or an aide who said, you got to go and go see the governor and go up to his office and go into private and all this. And then he kisses her on the lips. He all sorts of other stories. She has contemporaneous uh, uh, text messages with her mother and with friends and people saying, don't ever be alone with him. And, you know, it just, um, and so, you know, this is a guy who demanded that Brett Kavanaugh take a, take a polygraph test and, you know, all kinds of other things. He's a terrible, terrible person. He is not the worst governor in the world. He's done good things in New York state he has helped charter schools. He has re- he's rebuilding. He's uh, responsible for the rebuilding of LaGuardia Airport, which is uh, seems to be a kind of triumphant project. A second major bridge across the Hudson, the Tappan Zee Bridge, replacing the original one. Uh, the Second Avenue subway. There, he is. He as a builder, he is a very good as a as a human being, uh, and as a person who is not uh, does not display psychopathic tendencies. He is he is not so great. So uh, this is where we are with Andrew Cuomo. Uh, can I can I just chime in and say, this is a really interesting cultural test of our particular cultural moment, right? Because as we all, everyone's forgotten Me Too, evidently, like remember the Me Too movement, the Me Too moment. Well, all we the- forgot it because of George Floyd, right? Right, I mean, George Floyd. So right. race, the, the race issues have, have almost canceled out all the Me Too issues in, in certainly in terms of what the mainstream media wants to cover. Um, but at the as the Me Too movement, which did, of course, have its excesses, which we have, I think, been critics 
of the excesses, but there was some, there was certainly plenty of good that came out of it too, in terms of revealing behavior and activity that was, that was all too commonplace and shouldn't have been and things that women faced, particularly in the workplace. It even, of course, as we know, took a, quite a few Democratic uh, men's scalps. Eric Schneiderman was the one I was remembering from the other day that, you know, a sort of prominent, you know, called himself a feminist guy who was, in fact, you know, a horrible predator. So I will be interested to see how they deal with Cuomo. Cuomo, is, so far, all the media outlets have basically said, she said this, he's denied it, let's move on. It's like they don't even really want to engage it. But, you know, will we see the New York Times put a, its best reporters on this like they did about, you know, Harvey Weinstein? Will we see, you know, kind of outrage by feminists and celebrities? So far, we've seen nothing nothing at all. So it's a real test of, of the courage of the convictions of the people who say we have to treat all these allegations seriously. We have to look at the context. We've got to, we've got to make sure that these men are held accountable for their behavior. I'm pretty cynical at this point and don't think he will be held accountable for his behavior, but he should be and good for her for coming forward. Um, uh, it wasn't George Floyd that killed the Me Too moment. It was Tara Reid. Tara Reid came forward in, in, yes. in, in April. Not, not, not Tara Reid, the actress from American Pie. Tara Reid, the age. It should never Pie. be canceled. <laughs> yes. Well, except for that reality show. Yeah. Which was right. atrocious. Speak okay. no ill of Tara Reid. <laughs> um, um, yeah. So Tara Reid came forward. She was ignored. And those who gave voice to her claims, um, like Chris Hayes over at MSNBC, was savaged for it. And then the moment pretty much died. And this accuser actually has some built-in credibility issues, right? Because she wanted to run for state senate correct. And she has a grievance against Andrew Cuomo, whose administration sort of shot it down. She acknowledges all this too. So she has got, she's got some credibility issue that you could say, oh, she's just disgruntled. I don't know uh, about the press, but I can tell you uh, in my own, from my personally, anecdotally, in my effort to, um, to uh, rub the uh, continued transgressions of Andrew Cuomo in the faces of his most ardent fans in New York, um, they have failed the test um, uh, on the in the case of the uh, hiding the um, uh, uh, deaths from the nursing homes. The response, this is from more than one of, of his fans that I've spoken to was, uh, well, he did a he did a great job on COVID generally, but this was bad. Now, yesterday in the ca- in this case, the response again that I got from more than one of, of, of these uh, uh, Cuomo acolytes that I know is. Well, a lot of powerful, well-known politicians do really bad things. Right. It's the Bill Clinton defense, which we haven't seen since the 90s. We're back to the 90s. It's like, well, he might have overreached a little, but you have to excuse him because look at all the great things he did for women over here or for... (laughs) Karen Hinton, who was Bill de Blasio's press secretary and was Cuomo's press secretary at HUD, was... uh, ended up losing a um, confirmable post in Washington because when Monica Lewinsky stuff started coming up, she told some people that when she was a 26-year-old reporter in Arkansas, Clinton had manhandled her. And Cuomo pulled her into his office and said, you're done. You're done. How dare you? You're destroyed like that. So um, this is now that and Karen Hinton is a Democrat, <clears throat> rock ribbed. Uh, and, uh, you know, she's a she's a she's a tough customer. But, um, you know, she didn't retail this for no reason. Uh, and as I say, the Lindsay Boylan story is all but made 
clear that uh, there, disgruntled she may be, but there are those contemporaneous uh, texts and emails and stuff that she has that are in this piece on Medium that she posted yesterday. Um, and I, I want to say it's an important point here, which is that uh, the reaction to Cuomo is partisan. My description of, of Cuomo and his personal conduct is not partisan. I mean, I don't, uh, I, I have mixed feelings about him as a political figure, in part because, as I said, I think he has done good things. And I don't know what the motivations are, uh, but, you know, in, in the world in which we're no longer supposed to look at context, <laughs> context is now evil. Um, the simple fact of the matter is, for whatever reason, uh, in his um, uh, very strange rage at Bill de Blasio and desire to sort of crush Bill de Blasio, he ended up saving New York City's charter school system, um, and uh, in particular, the Success Academy schools. And um, that's not nothing. So <clears throat> when I condemn him, it, this is strictly a matter of his character, his personal comportment, and the fact that he behaves not in policy ways, but in personal ways that are simply not only unacceptable, but actually genuinely noxious. To the extent that in a forgiving atmosphere, he makes a policy, he's in a complicated, he makes a policy decision about sending these people back to nursing homes. Does it because there is a panic that there aren't going to be a sufficient number of hospital beds to deal with uh, the COVID surge in the spring of 2020. It was a bad decision, but it was made in good faith. No one on earth would think that he wanted to send people back to nursing homes to kill them or kill other people. That was not the purpose of it. And in another atmosphere and in another time, he could have said, uh, you know, uh, we made this decision based on the facts that we had at the time, and I'm heartsick and heartbroken that it happened and all of that. Instead, he decided to do a cover-up. That is the story, uh, because he was so in love with his own press clippings and with this new, newfound position he had as some kind of healer-in-chief uh, that he did whatever was necessary to maintain and, uh, and and bolster his reputation. You know, one one of the things that I think we'll see with uh, the reaction to the to, to these allegations about Cuomo and sexual harassment is something that, unfortunately, here's where conservatives and well partisan Republicans are to blame. You know, I often saw, particularly when the Tara Reid allegations were made against Joe Biden, a response of, "Well, you know, there have been credible allegations of harassment and you know rape made against." Donald Trump, where were you on those? Now, some of us were like, that's terrible. They should be investigated. Like, I I mean, I'm happy to say I'm bipartisan when it comes to people accusing other people of rape. Investigate it, like, especially if they're a public figure who has the power to hide and, you know, threaten uh, their underlings with with repercussions if they if they talk. So in this case, some of us have been consistent, but I do feel like there's another way in which, weirdly, Trump is going to protect Cuomo from the scrutiny he deserves here because people will, I think, uh, say, you know, nobody really, there were no repercussions for Trump. So why are there repercussions for anyone anymore? And this is, uh, this is a bad moment to be in. And I think we need to return to some sort of, you know, uh, fact-based investigation of, of these claims to see if they're credible. It's important. I mean, no, consider this, uh, the circumstance of Neera Tandon. 
So Nero Tandon, OMB uh, nominee, is uh, almost certainly not going to end up uh, as the confirmed OMB director <clears throat> because of really nasty tweets, right? But that wouldn't matter. That wouldn't do it to her. It's that she did nasty tweets about senators, about senators. No one's getting into trouble for nasty tweets except un- except people who are not powerful and don't have the backings of other powerful people. You go tweet something, and not us. You be a grocery worker and tweet something, and you'll lose your job in five minutes because you have no social standing and you have no backup and you have no nothing. You know, you, you tweet something that puts you crosswise ideologically of people, and they will go after your, you know, go after your jugular. But if you're powerful and can have a you know and have a sort of a, a backing system then maybe not it's a sort of it's, it's a and and this is the same i mean consider this a story out of uh, smith college brilliantly reported by michael powell in the new york times um which is about a person of privilege destroying the lives of two working class people um anyone want to take it up Give some give some context, as we say now. Well, everyone in our audience should read this thing. It's it's a long report, but every word of it is valuable. Um, I'm not even sure where to begin with it because every detail is so enraging. Um, the the story essentially follows a, a young woman, black woman, who's a student at Smith, who um, was in her telling in or in 2018 accosted while she was alone eating food in a dorm room cafeteria by staff um, and a security guard who asserted that she didn't, shouldn't have been there. And she took to Facebook later on that evening and said she was a victim of eating while black and half this, the half this, the faculty or not faculty, not uh, just staffers who approached her were guilty of racial bias. And this blew up the, the, college and the president uh, took the accusations as evidence and was very obsequious towards her. And there's a lot of background that um, led to her being this president being so deferential to this particular accusation, but the accusations didn't withstand any scrutiny. Um, The individuals were following the guidelines that were um, uh, imposed on them by COVID. Um, They were behaving in ways that were perfectly explicable um, in fact, uh, in a, it's an, it actually excuses their behavior. It's not just an explanation. And um, the, the systems are, that are built up around the anti-racism religion um, rallied to her defense. And a lot of the people who she targeted for uh, calling them racists were receiving harassment threats, uh, written threats on their cars and in their mailboxes, what have you. And people around her who are beholden to this belief structure, this ideology, still excused all that behavior, still found it you know, necessary to, to rally to her defense, to defend her actions, to defend her truth, even though it's not the truth. Um, and a lot of people and some people uh, lost their vocations as a result of it. Other people have still have stigmas attached to them and have social stigmas that are, that are they don't know if they're ever going to be able to get out from under. And it's all because this this one young lady um, has, has succumbed to a society-wide mania, which the arbiters of discourse in elite institutions from, t- on the, from the top down have inculcated in people and are 
uh, are encouraging them to to succumb to this narcissistic mania, and it's ruining lives. It was interesting, wasn't it, that the that the the, the moment that that spawned all of this was a very mundane moment. So the college was hosting a children's program in a part of the campus, which required that the people who were involved with the children had background checks, were safe. You know, this is something that if, you know, if you have kids and you put them in camp, they, they use other people's facilities sometimes. And they're very good. Good camps are good about making sure that they have the kids in a safe place away from people who haven't been background checked, et cetera, et cetera. She wandered into one of those areas, was told she shouldn't be there, and still insisted on flouting the rules and sitting there anyway. And then, you know, acts like she's this horrible victim of racism when none of it was true. The the, the other thing that emerged from this was just how craven and uh, corrupt and absolutely useless the ACLU has become. Because she had an ACLU lawyer who is in the face of clear and overwhelming evidence that this was not a racist incident has continued to defend her and people on the campus of Smith who have who go on the record with a New York Times reporter and say, which means they have to believe this because otherwise it's it's too awful to contemplate what they're doing. They said that the harassment and doxing and and you know threats that were received by these working class folks who work at Smith aren't any you really can't consider them because the experience of racism is still worse. This this vague experience of structural racism is worse than actually being threatened in your own home. That struck me as just a sign of of really awful things to come if we're going to run with this sort of the, the word he used it was a professor a professor of race racial justice a professor of racial justice. One of the things that uh, an aside one of the fun things that stood out to me is that you can major in social justice in this institution. Um, for no particular reason, audience, you know, I'm just, I'm interested in that sort of thing. Um, but this professor of racial justice described these threatening mailers as direct mailers. He used the term direct mailers. Now, anybody who's in the business of politics know what direct mailers is. It's an actual thing. It's not just a word that describes mail. It's a, uh, a campaign of in your mailbox advertisements to drum up support for a candidate or a fundraiser or what have you. So he thinks this is just part of a, it's just a political campaign. It's just a grassroots political campaign. Not a campaign of threatening and harassing male written threats to individuals from strangers. The cognitive disconnect on display there is just unfathomable. I mean, it should also be said that the student in question went on Facebook and named and showed photographs of three staffers. The ones who supposedly had tagged her for eating while said they were racist, called said them they racist. Were, called they were said they were racist. One of them was a janitor who was not on duty. So at all. One of them was a cafeteria worker who did not call security. And one of them was the security guard who was apparently near blind, who was operating on the on the order that uh she was in an area that was closed off and wasn't supposed to be used. She slanders them, defames them, and puts them at threat. The cafeteria worker makes $40,000 a year and is married to a mechanic and has lupus. Uh, Her lupus is triggered by anxiety she therefore found herself with an outbreak of this autoimmune disorder as a result and uh, has, by the way, been uh, furloughed uh, because of COVID 
and empty dorms. So she now not having been through this process and having not really gotten an apology from the school after the report exonerated her in every possible way, though the report acknowledges and the president of the university acknowledges that she was exonerated. Uh, basically gets uh, get, get, gets fired after having checked ha- having had to check into the hospital to deal with complications from the disease that were triggered, literally triggered in this case, not the philosophical emotional triggering, but a literal trigger for an autoimmune disorder that places her in the hospital. And as she said to, I believe probably to Michael Powell in the last line of the story, she says, she tells the story that she applied for a job at a local restaurant Manager set up a Zoom and asked her, aren't you the one involved in that incident? And she says, I was pissed. I told her I didn't do anything wrong, nothing. And she said, well, we're all set, meaning no job. So as as she has the the scarlet R for racist. I mean, honestly, what do I do? She asked, shaking her head. When does this racist label go away? So we have a made up. Uh, incident that turns uh, a student uh, into a star victim uh, at the cost of the lives and livelihoods of three people who uh, don't have the financial wherewithal to be students at Smith. You know, this is the question, like, is this an extreme story or is this a representative story? Uh, well, I, this is, I have a serious question. It's going to sound like a joke, but it's not. Um, might there not be a backlash at the Times among employees who say this story makes them feel unsafe? That's a very interesting point. That it, it because it casts, you know, it sort of makes uh, uh, racist, r- r- genuine racist interactions, it casts doubt on them now generally. And this, again, this is her truth. Um, this was this student's truth. And as, 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 the, as the piece says, um, her truth was at odds with reality, which itself is a kind of um, philosophical no-no uh, in, in, in the woke world. Well, you know, it's interesting. Mike, Michael Powell, uh, who is a, uh, was a longtime sports reporter and then a columnist, a city columnist with the paper, and has seems to have taken on this woke beat as a beat. He's somebody that I had a lot of interactions with on Twitter in the early 2010s, and they were largely him needling me about conservatism or sort of baiting me about things I wrote or said or something like that. So this is not a, a person who... Uh, comes at this from the perspective of, you know, a, you know, a neocon with skepticism about race or something like that. He is a, he is a well-worn New York City liberal uh, who does not have much sympathy for conservatism. I only mention this because uh, these pieces, this is one in a series. I can't remember what the other ones were, but I, this is like the fourth or fifth one. Um, uh are um are amazing and yeah i mean i it'll be interesting to see how long he can go on with this because they should feel afraid this is the sort of article these are the sort of percept that 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 will interfere with and damage the cause 
of critical race efforts in workplace everywhere. Because the whole point here is we think or they think that the victims are the people who have been triggered by some experience, emotional experience, right? The student. But they're not the victims. The victims are the people who get fired as a result of something that was done that may have been bad or may not have been bad or something like that. But you're talking about people whose professional lives, and we're even talking about a waitress here whose professional lives are ended. Yeah, that's, that's if there's anything that's going to break it, that's what's going to break it is legal liability. Um, after a certain point, this thing becomes a, a defamation suit, a wrongful termination suit, mm-hmm. the sort of thing that can generate seven or eight figures in damages. And um, that's when these institutions are going to start to to perk up. A lot of people, this, this whole phenomenon of anti-racism has compelled a lot of institutions to leave money on the table. Money has not been the inducement that we've seen people, you know, say, okay, well, we can't afford this anymore because even though it's psychologically preferable to these, you know, to the wokesters and it, it earns us some, some sort of uh, indulgence and provides us with relief from the inquisition, um, so it's been a worthwhile expenditure on the part of these institutions. But at a certain point, it will become uh, the balance sheet will will shift in the direction of just simple, simply uh, a fiduciary responsibility to your, you know, to your investment. Well, this this is what happened with the sort of title, the, the aggressive Title IX prosecutions, the sexual assault and sexual harassment charges on campus that the Obama era ushered in. It really wasn't until uh, these male students who were falsely accused and, la- and who were denied due process started to sue and, and were winning case after case after case with large amounts of damages. It didn't restore their reputations. Many of them, you know, still have, have this cloud hanging over them, but it wasn't until the, you Universities were made to pay and brought and dragged into court over this that they started to kind of reconsider whether or not this was something that they should be doing and also for the cultural shift to start to occur. Although, of course, we're going back in that direction under Biden. Uh, I mean, Abe, you know, something that's very difficult to bring up, but I think is worth bringing up here. So let's just say for the sake of argument that the that the uh, the security guard who came up to the student and said, you got to get out of here uh, because you're not in the right place. Say that person was rude or like, didn't, you know, wasn't particularly mannerly or something like that. And therefore she immediately says uh, it's because I'm eating while black. This is where do such people think that white people do not have unpleasant officious exchanges with pseudo authority figures all day long, like everybody else. Do you think that if you go to a door, you're not supposed to enter, there isn't some security guard who doesn't yell at you or, and, and is unpleasant. Do you think going through a metal detector, people aren't crappy? I mean, everybody goes through this. It, it is like the triggering anecdote of Ta-Nehisi Coates's book where he thinks a woman in an elevator is being rude to his 15-year-old son. Does he not think that 15-year-old kids in elevators don't get dirty looks if they're white from mean people who are annoyed that they're talking loud or something like that? Race as an answer for everything denies is is an incredibly distorting prism because 
it's like the you know the old Eddie Murphy skit. It's as though the the the, the imagining is that once white people are all alone we all get together and have a big party and everybody can do everything and people hand each other free money and you can you don't have to pay on the bus and you don't have to do all of that that is not what life is like white people get speeding tickets cops are nasty you know suburban cops are, are crappy to teenager every it's all life and there is a there is a deep denial of some absolutely basic standard facts of life for everyone and and uh, and I, I I think that they actually believe this, but it's crazy. So you know the challenge here is that these incidents don't happen in laboratory conditions, right? There's no control experiment to uh, to compare to whatever the interaction was that that is you know under examination, but people act as if they do happen under laboratory. Um, uh, uh, conditions um, by simply bringing in the heuristic of race. There's no question that, of course, racism does exist. Of course, much of it is directed at African Americans and his, historically has been. Um, but as a a filter for each individual case, um, it's useless to bring in as a sort of general prism for the reason, John, as you say, is that these are experiences that happen to everyone under various conditions every day. Well, it's not as though we don't have an epidemic of racial hoaxes. For a decade, we've created the incentives to uh, that you can get um, social benefits, social credit from being a victim of discrimination or bias. And so people have manufactured those incidents. This is a little different insofar as this isn't a manufactured incident. It's just a product of delusion. Like it's a, it, this person really genuinely believes that this happened. I, I have no reason to believe that they don't, even in the face of uh, overwhelming evidence to the contrary. But this she, is probably but, their, their lived experience, as it were, that redundancy that's really annoying. But two of the three people that she da- outed as her tormentors were not involved i mean so it's not a hoax because she believed something happened to her but she targeted two people whose lives have been horribly affected who weren't even involved by name had things put on their car can't you know can't get a job like I don't know what you call that. It's not a hoax, but it's a it's a crime. She has committed it is slander. It but there's is literal the, slander. But the but the the oh we get, I get to use the phrase we haven't used in a while. The incentive structure here, I think Noah's absolutely right, is clear because not only is there there sort of a, a, a rush to embrace the victim in any of these scenarios, but when someone's proven a hoax. There's no repercussions. I remember there was there was this woman who had been obviously involved in some Black Lives Matter protest rioting stuff that, you know, where she was uh, with a group of kids. And I'm, I'm even going to forget. I think it was in Missouri. Anyway, she claimed to have been the victim of a hate crime. She said someone came and threw, you know, lit her on fire in her car. The entire thing was was absolutely ridiculous from start to finish. But she was, you know, celebrities were calling her. She was this horrible victim of a hate crime. Oh, it's so terrible. 
Well, you know, fast forward a few months. And as with many of these cases, there was no evidence, no evidence. She was barely even burned. It looked, in fact, like she might have fallen and gotten a little bit of like road rash when she was with the group she'd been with earlier that night who had been trying to throw, you know, homemade Molotov cocktails at things. So she was clearly an instigator of all this. But there were no repercussions for her. She wasn't charged with filing a false claim. There there was nothing. So she got a, a moment of attention. And she and her lie was accepted by very, you know, famous people. She was called by these famous people, told it was great. No repercussions. So that's another part of it is it's not just that you get the attention for making, you know, these these narrative building these narratives about race. But when they're proven false, there are there's there's no consequence. And I do feel like that's where lawsuits are one way. But there should be some cultural shame. I mean, we've been talking about shame with Ted Cruz. There should be some cultural shaming of people who behave this way. The woman who made those accusations now has a nice fellowship at Columbia University. And the waitress she, she you know, defamed can't get a job. That's wrong. Right. Well, I mean, look, <clears throat> this goes beyond race, unless you want to consider Judaism a race. I mean, there, uh, whenever there is a swastika painted on a building or there is some kind of a a thing where someone says, you know, Jews get out or something like that. Uh, there has been there have been enough cases in which those things were perpetrated by the person who lives in the house or by or by a Jew trying to get attention or something like that. That every rational person should start from the pro- from the proposition that that is a hoax, not that it's real, because mostly over the course of the last twenty five years, they have been hoaxes. And why do people do it? People are mentally ill. People want attention. People are trying to make some kind of a bizarre point. They want to get a news story. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. The The existence of false accusation is why we have the legal system that we have. People make false claims, criminal claims, all the time to ruin other people. That's why you need witnesses. That's why your witnesses have to be named and have to be understood to be people whose reputations might suffer an injury if they lie about the claim that was made. And, you know, it's like, I I don't want to get into, you know, Me Tooism too much, but, you know, aside from the murder of of Cain in the Bible, uh, the first crime in the Bible is a false accusation. Potiphar's wife accusing Joseph of sexual harassment, right? Where he is thrown in, in, in jail and then he has the first of his, his, his great, you know, he has the, his vision that saves, saves Egypt eventually. Um, I mean, that tells me that the existence of the notion of the power of the false accusation is so old that it practically is a founding fact of civilization that you cannot presume that when someone says that person did x to me that what that what person that person is saying is true uh unambiguously and so that's one of the things that you lose when crimes get fashionable or when you know when accusations get fashionable right so the whole <clears throat> sexual abuse at daycare centers scandal of the 1980s what did people say when they said, really? They say that uh, to, that clowns <clears throat> had a satanic uh, altar in a basement and were having sessions with the clowns. And then what was said? Why can't you believe the children? Right? That was the phrase. Believe the children. Why can't you believe the children? 
Has anyone ever yeah, known so children? What you're describing is a moral panic, which is exactly what we're in. But moral panics don't last forever. But there will be a reckoning. But they're replaced by other moral panics. They're replaced by other moral panics. But we'll look, we get to look back on the other moral panic and say, wow, we were just crazy. But there is a way in which the the combination of, of the woke ideology and the the technologies and media for amplifying it have basically rewarded people with cluster B personality disorders. Like actually those people's behavior is constantly rewarded in this environment. And because they actually don't care about the consequences, they just keep doing it. I mean, it's a really strange mixture of incentive. I'm glad that you've mentioned this because uh, let me just say that we're talking about mental health issues here And let's face it, in 2021, mental health is a very significant issue for everyone. So many people struggling right now aren't feeling like their normal selves, and therapy really does help. But it doesn't have to be just sitting around talking about your feelings. What is therapy exactly? It's whatever you want or need it to be. You can talk privately to someone if you feel like you're not dealing well with stress or you're having relationship issues. Whatever you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy and now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours Join the millions of people who are seeing what therapy is really about. See if it's for you, because you are your greatest asset. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and commentary listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash commentary. That's better, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash commentary. And we thank BetterHelp for sponsoring today's podcast. So... um the uh, existence of uh, of these, you know, false accusations. Uh, I guess we should uh, we should now talk about uh, some of the things that are going to go on uh, in Orlando over the next four days, culminating in Donald Trump's speech uh, before the Conservative Political Action Conference. Um, uh, there there are about a, apparently at least a dozen panels that presume, uh, a, as a matter of fact, that the 2020 election was stolen. Um, apparently a panel called something like failed states, Georgia, Arizona, and Pennsylvania. Interesting choice of failed states uh, since two of them have Republican governors but those and Republican secretaries of state, but, but they, as those people, did not uh, bend the knee and do whatever they could uh, legally, illegally, morally, and immorally to support Donald Trump's um, uh, insane and barbaric effort uh, himself to steal the election in some fashion. Um, but apparently this is now the presumption. The, the presumption at CPAC was that the election was stolen. Um, and uh, we are, and so obviously what matters is what Trump's going to say uh, in the speech on Sunday. Uh, though I think we can probably presume what he is going to say. And um, anyone have any thoughts on this? I see very, very sour faces. I have, I have one thought, which is that, and maybe this is uh, too almost Pollyanna-ish to uh, a hope, but 
we haven't listened or heard from Trump very much, except through, you know, surrogates since since he left office. While it might feed the, the very rabid base who makes up now makes up CPAC, I wonder if the, the amplification of whatever he says on Sunday is going to be jarring enough in how, because people are sick of, I mean, a lot of people were sick of it, not the Republican base. I get that. But it was interesting to watch McCarthy and Kevin McCarthy and Liz Cheney, uh, I think it was yesterday, the end of a news conference where they were asked about Trump speaking at CPAC and McCarthy was like, yeah, he's going to speak. Liz Cheney's like, this is a terrible idea. He shouldn't have a, he shouldn't have a future of the Republican party. Like that was, that's the moment. That's the battle with those antagonists that I want to see continue. I don't really need or want to hear from Trump. And I wonder if the public reaction, the media is going to love it because they get to write a Trump story again. They're going to be all over this for the night, for the 48 hours after he talks. But they shouldn't be like, really? He I mean, is he that important? Um, he is to the extent that we give him that importance. And so I hope that I want to see Republicans have the Liz Cheney attitude, which is he's done. He's over. Let's move on. I'm yeah, unlikely you're to have that. Hope well, you, you I understand that. Romney uh, admitted was a very I know, tiny, I know. tiny faction within In the denial. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the reporting is that he's going to declare himself the 2024 presumptive nominee and, you know, dare everybody to get in line or not. And I, I mean, it, there's a lot of game left to play. And, and Amy Walter over at Cook Report has a very important corrective to a lot of the assumptions uh, on on the part of Democrats that Republicans are at war with each other and they're going to sacrifice their their um, uh, the tr- what they should benefit from the traditional dynamics of a midterm in 2022 and she says that's probably unlikely the Republican Party is actually probably going to rally in opposition to whatever Joe Biden is and their internal dist- you know differences will be muted by that unity and I think that's a astute analysis um, nevertheless you know the if the Republican Party is going to simply anoint Donald Trump the the uh, presumptive nominee in 2024. In at this point in 2021, I mean, the party should just simply dissolve. It ceases to exist as a as a vehicle for the for the uh, winning of elections and is just a, you know a personality cult. But I don't see that happening. There's too much ambition within the Republican Party to step aside and allow Donald Trump to just take the nomination away. A lot of people are going to compete for his lane. And there will be some people who will compete for the for the for the, uh, the that really small sliver lane, but there will be a competition. Compete people who are going to compete for his lane. Who they're going to oppose him, but they are essentially ideologically. What ideologically is a stretch of words. Not ideologically. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah uh, no, temperamentally, temperamentally yeah, will, in, in in keep in, you know aligned with him. You think? Sure, the Josh Hollies of the world. Yeah, they're, so they're you're, last so you're saying you're possible. saying that the cho- to, you choose between the Beatles and Beatlemania, and you go to Beatles. No, you choose you go- between the Beatles and the Monkeys. Yeah, well, right. the Beatles win. Maybe. I mean, name me a circumstance. You're saying the Beatles and the Monkeys. I'm saying Beatles and Beatles. I'm, I'm saying that they're all like cover bands, and he's the original band. So the 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 issue here is. Yeah, he hasn't spoken for six weeks. This could be like you know uh, having a having an old rocker show up at the Super Bowl. It's like oh, oh, you know, like the the entire Republican base is going to swoon because they haven't heard one of these stemwinders um, in a while. I I I think what's interesting here is uh, in the in the world in the notion that you know you should look for, hope for the best, expect the worst that. Um, uh, 2022 that we are going to be in a period of spectacularly muddy politics i think as we have for basically since 2015 
just going forward. Like uh, the politics will make very little sense in this sense, which is, uh, yeah, the Republicans are, there is a civil war. I mean, it's not much of a civil war because basically Trump is winning it, but there's some kind of a, there's some kind of a battle. Uh, and, um, there's a ceiling on if, if there I'm sorry to interrupt you, right. but if there wasn't a civil war, you wouldn't have to keep saying there isn't a civil war. It would be self-evident. No, it's not self-evident. And We're, it's not, a, it's not a hot war. It's okay. more like a cold war. I uh, see. I, I don't, I think it's more like, uh, a, what would you call it? Like, uh, the takeover is final. And then there are, uh, insurrectionists all over the Republican party. Uh, Adam, there's the Adam Kinzinger, <laughs> fight in illinois there are people like us not that we're in the party but you know there's sort of the the conservative intellectual crowd that d- doesn't like trump you have you have liz it's Cheney, an insurgency have, it's a okay. frozen it's conflict series. we, we, we swim among the people like the fish yeah that's right okay but then but but they but they have we're in our metaphor morass again i just want to point that out <laughs> yeah no, I mean, you know, the anyway, but my, my point is that uh, all this being the case, and there's a Republican civil war, and Trump candidates, primary successful Republican candidates, and win, and then they have to run, and, uh, 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 and all of that can be true, and as Amy Walter says, the Republicans will win the House and the Senate in 2022. What's more, they can win the House and the Senate in 2022 while Biden is riding high, Biden could be well over 50%, winning six seats back uh, in the House, and one seat in the Senate is really not that hard. You know, that's easy. Biden could be at 70%, and they could win those. And then it'll be like, well, you see, Trumpism is a winning... They, they We've come back because we embraced Trump, not because uh, we, we didn't. And then here's where it gets interesting in 2024, because the more you examine what happened in 2020, the more you will say Trump did about as well as he could possibly do, and he ended up with 46.1% of the vote, or 46 points, whatever it was, right? He got 75 million votes in a bizarre moment and all of that, and he, or 74 million votes, and he got 46 points. The Republican Party cannot win nationally under these circumstances, what do they do then? Because that's the truth. That is the truth. Um, what do they do then? Abe, say something. I need your help. Well, that's, you know, that's, um, the, the, you, you kind of, um, Sort of, you know, shut foreclose the whole future there of conservatism, didn't you? Well, maybe I'm wrong. That's not conservatism. This is just this is just the well, the fate the fate, the fate of the, the fortunes of the Republican Party, right? But if it dies with the non-conservative Republican Party, it, it dies nonetheless. But they have convinced themselves that they didn't lose, right? And I don't just mean the the nonsensical conspiracy theory that um, Donald Trump actually managed to pull off a victory in the half a dozen states he lost. Um, Every time you hear somebody rep, uh, reference the 74 million people who voted for Donald Trump. Well, they say 75, by the way. It was 74.1, but somehow this has been rounded up 900,000. Oh, Go okay. Ahead. Yeah. Well, it's, it's okay. Just reinforcing the delusion. But they're, you know, they're essentially saying we lost, but they're not saying we lost. They're saying, you know, look at the down ballot races where all these Republicans won where they weren't supposed to. Um, which, by the way, many of them outperformed the president president on the ballot un- under his name. Um, 
Nevertheless, this is, you know, this is evidence that the Republican Party is not in as bad a position as it would be in any other, in other any other circumstance. And they're not wrong about that. But they've also convinced themselves that Donald Trump wasn't the uh, author of their misfortune, but in fact, saved them from something much worse. Yeah, in fact, you're right. There is this there's this whole line of optimism among some Trump supporters that says, um, not only look at those numbers, but because of Trump, we've be- the the GOP has become a more diverse party. We have we have now taken back the the working class. Um, we, we, we he has he has pointed the party in a whole new direction that is going to pay dividends going forward. That's true. They they there there is that. You know we have a we have a rerun. We have historical. We have one historical parallel to uh, Trump running again in 2024 versus the past. Um, and that Wilkie? is... What? Wilkie? No. Eisenhower versus Stevenson. Oh, okay. So um, uh, Eisenhower uh, ran against Adlai Stevenson uh, in an open seat in 1952 um, and uh, won by 11 points. And amazingly enough, in 1956, Adlai Stevenson was nominated a second time to run against Eisenhower and uh, lost by 15 points. Um, so, uh, you know, the history of uh, renominating a defeated candidate, with the exception of the Grover Cleveland story, is not is not a happy one. And you have to ask yourself, like, once again, as dates back to 2017 uh, and the questions that led that were ultimately correct that, 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 that presaged Trump's defeat. How do you, if you're Donald Trump and you win with 46% against a 48% that, you know, having drawn an inside straight in the electoral college, how do you grow your support? So he grew his support numerically, right? He got uh I don't know, uh, 12 million more votes or 11 million more votes than he got the first time. But he didn't grow it in percentage term. He grew it by like 0.6% or something like that. Um, and and the numbers were weird. They were shifted around. There were more minorities and all of this. He lost whites. He gained minorities. Um, <clears throat> where does he go? Where does he go to get more voters? Where does he go to get more voters? And where do the Republicans go? They are consigning themselves to a political future, at least at the national level, in which there is a map that says that this guy gets 46% of the vote and he's the guy that owns the party. This is the dirty secret of Trumpism. It's not even a secret. The whole ethos of Trumpism is that we never win. We only lose. You will, you'll, you know, I'm going to let you win, but it's I'm going to get you to winning. That's the promise of Trumpism. But they only ever lost and the losing was what was so psychologically satisfying for so many of the Trump base because their whole worldview is predicated on the idea that the universe is dead set against them. These are insurmountable obstacles that they cannot overcome. Their victimhood keeps them warm at night. So yeah, why not why not give Trump another shot? It just reinforces their own persecution complex, one which he himself shares. But Abe's right. They don't think he lost. They think he won. The people who know that he lost are the people who are going to go, oh, my God, we are really, we're throwing our hands in with this again. Like, 
maybe if it worked, like I understand I have to do it defensively. I'm a, I'm a Republican congressman or something with a, with a, with an insurgent, with a resurgence or a, a surging Trump base in my state. And I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be flooded out by the Trump tsunami. I better like uh, pledge my fealty so I can keep my phony baloney job. Uh, but uh, people who are looking at this as a sort you know, a kind of structural way, uh, look at it and say, this is a very peculiar thing. Like, you no, know, you say parties are vehicles for winning elections. The Republican Party is conceivably, with the weird uh, 2022 results uh, in the middle, uh, kind of uh, muddying this up, but uh, clearly going down the path of becoming a party that pledges its troth to somebody who doesn't win elections. I mean, I mean I, there you could kind of say that that's what happened with the Democrats in 1972 after McGovern wins and the party McGovernizes as a, after getting 37% of the vote. Oh, no, 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 you can't. You can't. You can't say that. The party did its utmost best to thwart that in 1968. No, I'm talking about 72. After I know. And that was a response to 1968. The party's internal machinations designed to prevent uh, the, the anti-war wing from coming to the fore. Right. That was a response to the, to the party's self-preservation instinct. But it, this right. is not a self-preservation instinct. It's a suicidal instinct. After it, the party, the McGovernites, who got 37% of the vote, took over the party, took over the me- mechanisms of the party. They weren't shamed. They weren't, like, driven out. And the moderates came back and took over the party. Right. They didn't have any, any real-world evidence right. that their views were unpalatable. They did. So the, it's the, the they party, had the largest election loss party, in American history. They knew they were going to go down a bad path, but they didn't have any evidence to suggest that was not the case. This is not. This is not what the Republican Party is doing. No, you're but talking about. You're talking about sixty-eight to seventy-two. I'm talking about yeah. after seventy-two. Twenty twenty to twenty-four. Excuse me. After nineteen seventy-two, the McGovern wing took over the party after this huge defeat. And then they also mysteriously misunderstood results because then there was this gigantic Democratic victory in 1974 because of Watergate, this huge midterm wave. And then who ends up with the nomination? A weird right-wing-ish, socially conservative governor from Georgia because it was already clear that these lunatic leftists were too dangerous to run the party. And their control of the party left it in the wilderness for, you know, until Bill Clinton came and ratcheted it back to the center, like for for almost 20 years. It's an interesting, in other words, there's a Republican, there's a Republican parallel to what happened with the Democrats embracing the McGovern coalition uh, when it was a losing coalition after 72. I just want to, a related point, it just occurs to me. Um, the lifetime social media banning of Trump, because I'm thinking about the question of how, to, how does how does he get more uh, support for uh, 2024? Um, the lifetime banning might have done him an enormous favor, um, it, not only in the way that we've already articulated in that. It gets people um, sort of, you know, over to the side of look at how big tech is persecuting the right. But in that he is um, saved from shooting himself in the foot 20 times a day, every day. 
Um, it has been almost two months since January 6th. We would have heard, we, he, he would have already ratcheted up uh, his position. He, there would have been so many more negative um, outbursts on Twitter between then and now. And there has there have been none. And over the next, over the course of the Biden uh, administration and the Biden the Biden presidency, uh, we will get to see. It's it's almost like the the 2016 campaign in reverse, where you didn't see when you where you didn't hear from Biden and you and you saw Trump every day. We will hear from Biden for four years because he's the president, and and Trump's sort of you know daily recklessness may largely um, be forgotten. To at least the severity of it, you know, we'll forget exactly what that was like well, that, every day. Look, I mean, I think that's a there's a very a telling thing here, which is that um, what was it that people said? They were like, "I like him, I like his policies, but I don't like the tweets. I don't like the tweets." So they right? took care of that for him. And then the whole idea was like, for him, the tweets were everything, not the policies, right? And and we never had a real world test of what it would be like to have Trump without the tweeting like there wasn't some six month period in which like a lot of people on twitter he was like i'm sick of this i'm not going to do it anymore i'm I'm deauthorizing my account um and so you could see whether his numbers would have gone up or how or how he would have been you know how how he would have been i guess this is an interesting real world test this forced uh uh silence um uh that yeah that by all means, I don't think people are going to forget because when he actually speaks and is covered, uh, he'll be Trump. And, you know, no, there's no one, d- despite the Beatlemania imitators, uh, there's no one who sounds like him and no one who has that kind of uh, raging invective quality uh, that he has or that, that they can they can easily uh, duplicate. So I want to remind everybody, merch dot commentary magazine.com for those t-shirts sweatshirts tote bag uh you'll love it merch.commentarymagazine.com and so for christine abe and noam john pot keep the candle burning